1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Caroline H. And Caroline H was married to an abuser with a double life. It's a story of perfectionism, doubling down, sexual abuse, the water torturer, and escape plans. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick and with me today we have Caroline. How are you? I'm really good, Brandon. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you so much for being here. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Caroline is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please do read all of the instructions, and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our guest form and press the Submit button. And today you are going to hear Caroline's story and a lot of trigger warnings uh, for this episode, physical abuse and sexual abuse. This story, the sexual abuse in this story, is, uh, hard to listen to. It's something that I don't think we've ever had on this show before. I'm actually going to be giving a, um, warning right before it actually happens, which is unusual. Uh, but with this one, I think it's, um, just in case you're going to get a one last second, Uh, trigger warning before it uh, is talked about in this episode and and Caroline will do so as well. So a big trigger warning uh, for this episode. If this isn't for you, please turn it off. And I really just want to thank Caroline for, for being here with us today. This is not an easy story to tell. So really just a big thank you. And Caroline, the floor is now yours.
0: Thanks. I really appreciate you having me today. I think it's going to be a great opportunity to share story and community because I know that when people share their stories, others feel less shame and alone in the world. So I'm happy to be here sharing mine today. So my family, when I look back, it's far different now with knowledge I have than what I thought it was then. So my growing up, my mom and dad were married for the entirety of their lives from, you know, about 20 years old on until my dad passed away in March of 2020. They were a really generous couple and they loved each other. It was evident in how they treated each other. And it was evident even to the outside world. I would get comments from friends that said, oh my gosh, I just saw your mom and dad walking in the mall and they were holding hands. And that's so cute. And they did that. They were very affectionate with each other. And in my growing up, I always, I'm a firstborn, I always wanted to prove my worth by doing more and being more. And as I look back now, after living through what I've lived, I realized that a lot of the time when my mom showed up, her ability to love was sometimes difficult. Her ability to love sometimes included a whole lot of screaming and her ability to love included well if you did something wrong your room got trashed so it was moments of I felt fiercely protected by my dad I felt encouraged by my dad and by my mom I was always trying to just keep the peace and keep staying in the bask of her love and keep trying to avoid those outbursts that just decimated me and that part of my growing up didn't really give me that perspective of who I was as a kid until I was in my fifties. And I thought, oh, wow. So this has been my life. I've spent my life trying to prove my worth. I've spent my life trying to be more and do more so that people love me, starting with my mom. And that extended out even to family, to friends, to lovers, and to the people I married or had relationships with. That has been my theme running through all of childhood. But at the time, I would have looked at that as normal because I didn't know any better. And it's through everything I went through that I realized that those moments forever haunted every single thing I did. Just keep the peace, first of all. Just do more, be more, so that the peace can be kept. And just try to stay in that bask of love and and wonder and acceptance versus the ugly that came out out of nowhere for which I was blind.
1: So did you feel that your mom loved you?
0: I do. She often said, I love you. So she would say those things and I know she had it in her, but I think maybe there was an underlying something that maybe wasn't discussed with kids that we didn't know about. And I think she tried to get help on those instances. I remember lots of time her going into therapy uh, finding out about that kind of on the sly or overhearing a conversation. And I think she struggled a lot as a mom and I, and that was hard to live through.
1: And, you know, you are at this very young age afraid of the outbursts. Would you say that you are a perfectionist of any sort? Would you say that you have a fear of failure in, in many instances? Definitely.
0: I, I, I don't know how I, I used to choke. Uh, I had an accountability partner and we would meet every month uh, because we were both going through some really great career changes and we wanted to encourage each other. And I said to him, I don't know what the least amount of work is in order to get the best grade. So because I have no concept of my own effort, I double down and overproduce in school, in work, in relationships. And we joked about it at the time. And now I realize it was a pretty big trauma response to how I grew up. If I am perfect in every way, if I am perfect in that, I can be a size two. If I am perfect in the grades I get, if I am perfect in any, you know, delivery I have to give in front of people with work, with home life, then things will be okay. And striving for perfection has what is what fueled me the entirety of my life.
1: And when it comes to uh, relationships and your view of relationships from that time, how did you view them? Uh, did you have certain beliefs about um, the world? Um, did you have beliefs about yourself that no one else saw? And I guess, um, did you have religious beliefs that might have gone into certain places when it comes to Uh, relationships as well?
0: Definitely. I look at my Catholic education. So I went through 12 years of Catholic school and very much believed that you love people because this is what we were taught in school and at home. You love people in spite of their flaws and that if they are flawed or if they hurt you in some place, it's really your job to love them anyway. It's really your job to participate in their lives and try to change that because through God's work, you can change people and you can help them along the way. That is what fueled me in every single relationship. So even at an early age, when I first started dating, if I was dating someone that really didn't make me feel very good, well, that didn't mean that I'd break up with them. That meant... Well, I just double down on who I am because I am smart enough to change them. And I can do so if just by me being good and me being overly good and me overproducing and me, if you're, if I'm going to give you a birthday present, it's not just going to be a birthday present. It is going to be a tricked out birthday experience for you to know how much you are loved and for me to prove my worth to you that I am lovable. And you can represent that out in whether it's relationships with my kids, overgiving in order so that they wouldn't feel bad or or stress about their life, making things super easy for them so that they didn't have to wonder and worry that they were loved because I was showing my love by doing more for them and into my friendships as well to the very big detriment of not speaking up when friendships really Weren't that great or weren't that healthy? And instead of saying, oh my gosh, that person just did something horrible, I would think, oh, surely I didn't hear them right. So that carried into every dynamic that belief of being more, that belief of you love people and, and they're all their perfect imperfections just as God loves. Those things fueled me in every step of the way.
1: So the abuser that eventually entered your life, you actually met them when you were in college. So take us through, uh, I guess, how you met them and then how you were reintroduced to them.
0: Sure. When I first met this person, we were in college and we had the same major. And when you start college or at least Back in 1987, when I started college, you went to orientation for a week or so before everybody showed up on campus and you were put into all these group activities based on your major. So this person I was with all the time, the first week of college and then most of freshman year and then most of sophomore year and just doing activities because we were in the same major, the same track, same classes, going to parties together and as he got more into his major and my major switched up, we, and you find different sets of friends, we still had contact with each other, but it wasn't as much. It was, you know, we know each other, still hello, still great, but not the intense of what we had freshman out one year. Now, we did not stay in contact after college. And what happened about 20 plus years later is Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and we connected again on Facebook and this was post my divorce and post his divorce and we reconnected on Facebook and started a long distance relationship because I was living in St. Louis and this person was living in Kansas City and that's where that's where the relationship began about 20 plus years after we first met
1: so in a way he was vouched for due to the history So you're not thinking of abuse. Uh, You also have no kind of concept of, What abuse is, in a way, because you know you grew up in an environment where you thought that this was normal kind of behavior, so it's very difficult for you to tell what is abuse and what isn't abuse. And as we stated earlier, you're going to about to be dealing with someone who is the water torturer on Lundy Bancroft's list, and this is someone who's not really a rager per se. And is very subtle in in a lot of the things that they're doing, making it even more difficult to understand what's going on. So you reconnect with them on Facebook. Uh, what are your conversations like? Are you having like a shared future? What is the dangling carrot? What's the thing that you like about them the most? And are they buttering you up in a way? Are they making you feel seen because you just came from you know being divorced. So are you looking for the opposite of what you just came from? Like I guess, how are you feeling about yourself in this instance? and what is this person giving you that you really needed at that time?
0: Brandon, I love this set of questions and I love the discussion that's going to unfold around this part of it because now I see clearly then I didn't know. So I was coming from, you know, a mother that I wanted to do more, be more, invest more, because surely if I could do that, it would control the outbursts and the rage. I entered into a marriage of 20 years that was by all standards, held currently fairly good. The problem was we differed in going out together. He, never, he didn't really want to participate in anything with me. And our sex life was negligible. And those were two things that were important to me. I am a social person. I love going out. And I think the best thing you can do in life with the right partner is have amazing sex. And I we weren't, we weren't. And so while we were really great friends, there were those key parts of my life that weren't being met. And so when I started this relationship, it was love. It was intense love. It was a physical attraction. It was acted on with great sex. It was travel. It was connecting. It was being invited to experiences and people um, via his work, via our travel together, and it was this dangling carrot of these are the things that have been missing in my life, coupled with the, the sad story that he presented about himself. No one has ever loved me like you do, sweet pea. My life has been so sad up until now. My first marriage was horrendous. I have such sadness over my child who is disabled. You were bringing joy to my life. And you are the only person who can fix me. My parents didn't love me. My sisters never showed up for me. That family doesn't even show up for their grandkids. Now I've had this horrible life where I've never felt love and you are bringing love to me. So for someone who wants to overinvest in people to prove their worth, I was off to the races. I was man proven decorating. I remember coming up to Kansas city and decorating his son's door for his birthday. balloons and streamers and just overproducing myself if there was something to be done I did it to the nth degree if there was a party to be had it was balloons and streamers and everything amazing if it was travel, then I made sure there were things like wine and roses ready in the in the room if we were going together or if he was traveling by himself I would have treats set up in his room that he would be able to walk in during his travels and have a nice welcome for me with a handwritten note that I would write and send in advance to the hotel or to be put in his room. So for the person who wants to overextend herself, I bought right into his need to be loved, and because he felt he never been loved, because that was the story he told, I doubled down on it in spades. And those first six weeks of our reconnection were magic, and I would spend the next almost eight years trying to achieve the first six weeks again. And that first part of our story really sets the tone for the entirety of every single action on the, on the back eight plus year, almost eight plus years of me trying to get to those moments again.
1: Was he reinforcing all of the things that your mother rejected?
0: Yes. He was reinforcing everything about me as a human., uh, so let's say, oh my gosh, Carolyn, I love when you walk into a room. I love to stand behind you and watch how people gravitate towards you. I love to watch the attention that you get from people because of who you are as a person. you're You're amazing as a person. You're stellar in what you do. You're so smart in how you do your work in sales. I love seeing how you talk when I go to events of yours. And how you can communicate and you can make things happen by your connections. And fueling of me with attention as far as the amount of sex we had, as far as just everything about me that was so ignored in my first marriage and at home growing up, he emphasized with a marching band and fireworks.
1: So you know, you have this beginning part of the relationship, you know, you're hooked right away. Is there an event that like hooks you for good and you're like, okay, this is it. Or it was just all of it combined.
0: Uh, There was one event and it was this entire week long experience that he was asked to go to for his work. And he invited me spa treatments during the day, great meals. And we were hiking um, all over the place. And he, I remember the day and it was, it, it's interesting because it was in March. He said, let's go hike in Sedona and let's fall in love up in the mountains. And that night when we got home, you know, he professed his love and wrapping himself around me. And Oh my gosh, I love you so much. And look what we're creating. And that was it. I was off to the races. I was in it, double down, tied to it. What more can I do to make this work?
1: So eventually things take a turn for the worse. So when does the devaluation begin?
0: When I look back with what I know now, I can market to six weeks in. So I just gave you a timeline of when I would, I was hooked, right? That was March in December, the previous December, we went on a trip to Vegas and I look back now and that is actually when the devaluing began. That's actually when I started to work into the cycle of double downing to prove my love. We were at this, getting ready to go out to a concert in Vegas. He had gone down to the bar early. I came down the elevator just feeling unstoppable. If there had been a wind machine in the casino, that's what I felt like. My hair was perfect, kind of blowing in the wind. That's what I, that's the vibe I had about myself feeling really good. And I got down there and he said to me, you look like a whore. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said, you look like an F whore." And, and I said, that really hurt my feelings. He said, oh my God, you can't take a joke. Are you kidding me? I'm giving you shit and you can't take a joke. What I did was go into defending myself. I'm not mad about it. I'm, I'm just saying that hurt my feelings. And he came back with, Okay, so now you're going to want to have to talk about this the whole rest of our trip. Well, I mean, he was he was so devaluing me, which then only made me jump into defense mode and proving my worth mode. Well, maybe I misunderstood him, right? Because anytime in my friendships growing up or in my family, if somebody was mean, I went into, well, maybe I just misunderstood them. Maybe they didn't mean those words. And I left right into that and... The devaluing of that started to happen. And I can look back because I keep a diary. I can look back now and see parts even at Christmas time where he was not places he said he was going to be. For example, I talked about sending flowers in advance or a note in advance to hotels. I would send this and there started to be times where he wasn't staying at the hotels he told me he was and i would find out about it and he'd say well my my company just switched me at the last minute i can't control that oh so you want me to tell me every single thing about when i travel well no i just i sent something for you i sent things to this hotel and i do think it's kind of weird that you didn't tell me you weren't even going to be in the same city you said you were going to be in and i look back at that now and there are moments of such shame i'm working through the shame and i do leave it behind but i think my gosh all these things that I recognize now that we're just the tip of the iceberg of what was to come.
1: So, in that moment with the hotels, you know, you catch him in a lie. He has a very quick excuse for everything. When you discuss, why couldn't you just tell me uh, that this happened? Instead of answering that question, he switches it and Pushes a question on to you, making you the bad guy. No voice is being raised here at all. You're now on the defensive in these situations. And he's just very good at taking something that is thrown in his corner for him to deal with, for taking responsibility, and then shifting that blame of some sort might not be that or just a diversion back onto you so the concentration is on you and possibly something you've done wrong. And because you are the person you are and how you were raised and being this perfectionist, always wanting to be good enough and go beyond what you want to do to accept love, you are someone who is not going to be able to ping pong backwards. You're going to take all of that in and you're going to blame it on yourself and then come up with reasons to be a perfect person that will get the love from this person once again. And early on, before anything is happening that is gone beyond that, these little tests are being done to show him what can eventually be done later. And, and things do escalate, correct?
0: Oh, they do escalate. And you stated it perfectly. With him... It was always, what is the threshold of what she will tolerate? And then me, and then operating in that threshold and and me doubling down, me being more, I guess I misunderstood and I'm so sorry I even asked. And and then he pushed it further the next time, just to, to keep gauging how much he could throw me off in order to keep me always unsteady, always as if the ground was coming from beneath me. And I'm just going to keep overproducing and keep being stellar in every way to him, to his family, to his kids, because then that will make it okay again. And because it was something that was my whole life, it felt normal. That felt normal to me. In fact, once I would leave him, the buzz in my head, the kids and I would call it the buzz in our head. We were so used to trying to keep the peace when we just had a peaceful life it was really difficult. It felt as if something was wrong in our bodies or in our world because we weren't operating any longer under that standard of insanity of just trying to keep the peace and keep the blame from happening. And I can even take it a step further with that Vegas story. And when it used to be, I love watching you walk into a room and everybody looking at you you can't even walk down the street without people looking at you. It's because of how you're dressed. So he took the very things that he claimed to love about me, twisted it and turned it and used it against me as the relationship devolved versus evolved. I didn't know it was evolving. And then within two hours, you know what? We've walked around so much. Let's pop in here and let's buy you a brand new pair of shoes. You deserve a brand new pair of shoes. Let's do it. I'm buying them for you. Let's get them on. This is going to be an amazing trip. And now... What I know is that is right encapsulated within the three-hour frame of Vegas in 2009, love bombing, evaluating love bombing, and then starting the process again. It's the whole evolution that was starting to play out in little parts, even as early as six weeks into our relationship.
1: So, you use a very interesting word here, or at least I think it's interesting, which is the word overproducer. And to me, it's a very job or career oriented type of word. You know, a valued member of the company, they're a producer. Also, if you are to be abused at work, it's something someone says, like, you need to produce more. So, for you, I guess, what does this word mean to you? And do you think of your. Uh, personal life in, I guess, career terms, like career analogies, things like that? Is like, is there a crossover going there?
0: That plays into it. I loved my career in sales. I loved it. I'm really good at what I do. There's never been a time in 30 years that I was not in the top 10% of any company. And usually within the top one to three people in the company. And so when I have that kind of success over what comes naturally to me and what I love to do, and interestingly enough, in work, I was always surrounded by amazing people who fueled that, who, who, who actually invested in me for that, to hone my skills, be leadership positions, all of that. I loved it. But it's that overproducing in an entity which I loved and thrived in within work. Is the exact overproducing? I often refer to him as just my toughest customer. If I could just figure out a way to better communicate with him, he's my toughest customer. If I could just figure out a way to meet his needs at where he is right now, things would be great. Again, my toughest customer. And that's how I referred to him for eight years. And for me, the biggest aha moment in that is if I am traveling across the country, talking to really smart people about how to take care of humans. That was my job. And there is one person in my personal life who is devaluing every single thing about what makes me fabulous. The problem is not with me and communication. The problem is with the one person who is the outlier from every other smart person I interact with across the country. And if I had looked at it that way, it would have been easier to walk away. But as the person who doubles down on love to prove her own worth, the spotlight was on him to be my biggest project to completion of success.
1: So after these first like six weeks and the Las Vegas stuff, how do how does your relationship devolve further from there?
0: From there, it went into I I there was a lots of dynamics going on in my industry and people were getting laid off and losing their jobs. And I was offered a job in Kansas city where he was. And I was offered to still be able to work in St. Louis where I grew up and was currently living. And I took that job because there were, it was, the economy was crashing. There's so many people I knew were out of work. And if I could maintain my salary and even get more salary in an industry that maybe wasn't as volatile as what I was currently in and have the best of both worlds, because now I was going to be in Kansas City part-time living with this man I loved. And I was going to be in St. Louis part-time working still with, with my friends and family there. Well, life became perfect and living together presented another host of problems because it was a constant work to keep up the facade That everything was okay for myself. So it became where, when I was living in St. Louis, I would have breaks. I wouldn't, wasn't around him all the time, but now since I was around him so much more in Kansas city, it really started to preoccupy my, my life. So it became plans that were to be made, you know, having all our kids together, blending the family and uh, something needed to be desperately handled at work. And he was called into the office and he would leave. So we would create these moments where everybody could be together and he would buzz out and be gone for three hours. What I would find out later is he was taking those three hours to meet up with random strangers off the internet, both men and women for sex. I didn't know that. I would have zero idea if he said, hey, the CEO needs me to come in and work on a special project that just came in. Now, I never saw that when I wasn't living there but it became a regular part of our life once I did live there. Is the constant disappearing, the constant with, with hey, I got to do this and me thinking he was at work and he was nowhere near work. And it became then an easier opportunity for him to create me as the problem. Because if I'm asking, well, gosh, why do you get, keep getting called into work like that? It was just a, hey, what's happening at work that is requiring this more? Oh my God, Carolyn, you're what? You don't want me to work now? This, this is what this, I provide for us. I provide for the family we're building together. You don't want me to work? Well, no, that's not what I said. Oh, so you want me to, you want me to go, you know, go through my phone? You want to see what I've been doing on my phone? And I said, no, actually, I don't. I just asked about work. But what I see now is he knew what he was doing. So he, he's not quite sure what I'm doing. So how much can he unnerve me to stop asking questions? How much can he unnerve me so that eventually I just be quiet about what's going on? because it was easier to be quiet than it was to face his wrath about throwing things at me to see what stuff to which I had not even brought up to, as part of the equation. And again, I am off to the races and thinking, well, this is just me. I'm internalizing everything. I just need to communicate better. I need to do this better, because somehow he took in my tone that I was questioning him and I was just asking a normal question and okay, he's my toughest customer. How could I have written, how could I have done this differently? I I recently found a a journal from these timeframes, these, this middle ground of living in Kansas city and, and the evolution of our, our relationship. And I was very nervous to read it because I thought, Oh my God, this is going to make me so sad. This is going to make me really sad to, to reread the documentation of devolving in our relationship. And it actually gave me such peace because during that time, and I do believe this is part of what saved me, that the gifts I bring to the table, as far as empathy, connection, I don't quit, I never lose, are the things that when I decided to start investing in myself would help me heal. And I was doing those things in small ways, according to my journal's and according to what I wrote, and according to what I was doing in self-care. So it was there. Was it there to the level of what it should have been? No, but it, it was foundational little pieces that I discovered about myself that would then, when things really hit the fan, help in my healing. So I started to realize, hey, well, maybe, just maybe, if I invest who I am in myself, And in the right people, all this other stuff I can eliminate from my life because I won't tolerate it any longer. And so I am so thankful for finding that journal and reading through the most horrific times of of yelling and screaming that I at least had tiny little pieces of foundation. My visual image is that I'm on a lake that's breaking up in ice but I have enough big chunks near me that I can hop from one chunk to the next. Now there's cracks floating through all the ice and it's wobbly and it's cold and uncomfortable, but I am hopping at least from one big chunk of ice to the other, trying to get to the other side. And that I think is at the time, probably what made me stay because I thought I'm doing work on myself to make it better. But now I'm so glad that at least I was doing work on myself to fuel me in some way on the inside. It's really important to point out that when you can remember the moment that someone highlighted what they loved about you, and then they turn that around and use it against you, that water torture was evident. It was constant. It was a constant demeaning of who I was as a person, as what I held dear. and. There was a big moment. I remember he came home from a, um, a work trip and I was in my sitting out on our back patio. I had a fire pit burning. I was, had a great glass of wine. I was super excited to come for him to come home. And he walked in that house with an agenda that instantly made me shrink. I could tell by his body that he was livid and he home and he walked out on the patio and he said, you know what? Sometimes it's really hard to come home to you. Now here I am because I have planned a fabulous evening and dinner. I have gotten dressed up. I am so Zen on our patio. I I can still feel what my body felt by his energy and by his words. And he was intent on picking a fight with me and he was intent on crashing his homecoming I didn't know why. I do now. It's a, it's a, this is a beautiful story for a preface of what I discovered. But at that point, I, I really, instead of being neutral, I met him with that same energy. And I said, how dare you walk through this house with that kind of energy? How dare you try to pick a fight with me? This is unacceptable. And your behavior is not going to be tolerated like this any longer. And I got up to leave. And he grabbed me by the arm. And he brought me back out. And that this is when it, it started to get physical um, because up until this point, there, there wasn't a physicality. It was emotional and, and verbal and financial abuse, but it wasn't physical. And he grabbed me and he, and he threw me in the bathroom. And he said, your entire sales career, you have answers for everybody. And now you've got an answer for me. Did they just, put this into your brain. Is that how they've taught you to be a human is to have an answer for me? And I said, I don't know what question I answered. I, I, I'm just telling you your behavior is unacceptable. Sure. Now you're going to judge me on how I'm behaving. Exactly. I am because look at how you're behaving. So I, I started to push back. Now, when I started to push back these points is when the physicality started to in, throwing me into, to the, to the bathroom. It manifested in me running from him and trying to get to a bathroom to lock the door in other instances. If we were driving, it manifested and I was pushing back and saying, this is unacceptable. I'm not tolerating it. He would grab this steering wheel and try to run us off the road. And then it would all be my fault because I was talking back and I was, I was daring to doubt him and I was daring to tell him how he should behave. And, and that started to escalate and move forward up until February of 2016 on Valentine's Day and we were at a um with a group of friends and we were at dinner and I was tired and uh it'd been a long day and so I I leaned into him all lovingly and I put my hand on his back and I said oh sweetheart I want to take you home and let's get naked and he took me threw me against a wall, spit in my face and said, you will not fucking tell me what I'm going to do. And I left. I, we had a, an appointment scheduled. We were, we were at that point eight weeks away from getting married. We had an appointment scheduled that morning, the next morning with the minister to talk about the flow of the wedding. Um, he, we got home. He fell asleep. I tried to call a cab. This was way before Uber. I tried to call a cab and we were in a small, tiny train town. There was no train and there were no cabs. I, tr- I begged on the phone for a, a cab company to drive an hour and a half to come pick me up. And I said, I will pay whatever I need to pay because we had all taken the train and none of us had driven. And when I couldn't get anybody to, to do that, I packed up and I started to march out of the bed breakfast and was going to find any place else to sleep other than with them. And one of my friends followed me outside and and he said, Carolyn, what has happened? What's going on? What we saw was unacceptable. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. I'm trying to get home. He's like, we don't have a way home. Like there's there's no way we're getting back home. He's like, come in. You can sleep with with me and and my wife in, in our room. And I came back in. I decided I wasn't going to create even more of a scene. So I ended up sleeping in our room with him. He was passed out on the bed. And I had my backpack to leave first in the morning. The train was leaving at 8 a.m. And he woke up at some time in the middle of the night and said, what happened last night? Like he didn't even remember. And when I told him what happened, oh, my gosh, then it was tears. And I'm so sorry. I don't know what got into me. I'm really sorry. I would never do that to you. And I must have done it not even knowing what I did and crying and weeping and I and Meanwhile, I had canceled the minister. You know, I canceled all of that. I won't ever drink again, Carolyn. I will never drink again. We took the train home. And by four o'clock that afternoon, he was drinking again. And it was all my problem, all my fault that he had acted the way he'd done the night before. So I at that point, the window of kindness and love before the devaluation and the love bombing was getting to be about a four-hour window in our relationship. And, but man, his apology is there and he's, he's going to do it. Even if he's drinking again, well, he still did apologize. And I'm still starting to excuse everything he did because, Oh, he apologized and he was drinking and maybe he doesn't remember. And, and just kept back up with the plans, back up with the wedding on back with taking him out, using my gift certificates i had gotten for christmas to buy him clothes again overproving myself to try to keep the work there and try to maintain the peace because now i'm worried if he threw me up against the wall and spit in my face what else can he do
1: so before we continue with you know the deevolution of, of what's happened a little bit ago you did mention the, the term financial abuse So I guess what's happening financially going on, and now that you are really a long way into your relationship here, this person is no longer that six-week person, right? and you have all of these things that are internally working against you. I guess over time was your, you know, you started standing up to him, which is a big thing, and then you started to notice once you stand up to him, abuse tactics escalate. So now you know exactly where it can go. So I guess at a certain point, uh, your feelings about this person of what you're dealing with are one way. Eventually, it changes into fear, Uh, so what are all of the feelings throughout, and how do they change, and where does the financial abuse as well kind of come into play here before we kind of get into the extreme stuff that really happens toward the end?
0: When the financial abuse, I would not find out until after I had planned my escape, so he would often tell me that, you know, we needed to take money out, Cash in my stock, and we need to take money out of my accounts because, gosh darn it, he had to pay so much in child support that he was just—you know—he had just been beaten and battered in the divorce, and he has to pay so much he can't pay his bills. Uh, we had a joint account, and you know, could I put more money into that joint account to cover bills and to make sure everything was okay? Because you know, here's my paycheck, and here's where the money is going. And what I didn't realize that he had from his paycheck set up separate accounts that I didn't know about. So he was funneling thousands of dollars into those accounts and showing me a part of the stub that he had printed off and doctored that took out those accounts. So I'm looking at what I think is his whole paycheck, and it wasn't. He had been stocking away money and using my money, from my retirement, from my bonuses, from a stock sale to finance our life together. And I would only find out afterwards that he had declared bankruptcy and that also he had been funneling money um, after the bankruptcy from his paycheck into secret accounts that I didn't know about. So that's where the financial abuse abuse started to happen.
1: So I guess, how are you feeling about yourself now from where you were to who you are now? And, I'm sure being a perfectionist is not easy here, because there's a lot of shame, embarrassment, uh, feelings of failure. So were you in touch uh, with these feelings uh, at the time during this time, or were you avoiding them the whole entire way?
0: This part, and particularly these feelings my God, decimated. I can get emotional about it now because I feel so sad for the person I was then. I have such empathy for her. It's because I was constantly as if my nerves were on fire. Every word felt as an assault on my body, that even my own feelings were coming out in these bursts that were rage Fueled sadness it was the only way that I can describe it. It would come out in fits and starts. If there, was, if, if there were moments when it was so bad that I decided to be quiet instead of speak up to myself, my God, Brandon, I would have coughing jags or I couldn't even catch my breath. Because my body was holding back so much of what I wanted to say. It was literally making me cough. And I couldn't catch my breath. And that would send me into a panic attack and it would send me into this spiral of wanting so desperately to figure out this man in our relationship to the detriment of my own feelings and how I felt when I share my story, the feelings, I can feel it from my head to my toes, how I felt standing in our bedroom, just Begging him to be nice to me. No, as a as an accomplished woman, was I begging someone just to be nice to me, and that person would look me in the eye and claim to love me. So the disparity between the claims of love and the and just outright meanness was so foreign from me. I felt as if I was splitting in two. I felt as if I would never again be able to feel. I would numb myself out. I started drinking more. I stopped exercising because that, that release of endorphins somehow jacked with my system. I couldn't tolerate the feeling good. It, it became so foreign to me to feel good that when I did, it felt wrong. So I stopped exercising and just lived in this constant state of anxiety and, and sadness that was part of our everyday life. It, it manifested in, in my work and that I couldn't concentrate. It manifested in, in how I parented because I wanted the kids not to... to Realize how bad it was, even though I, I can remember my daughter saying, You know, I think if you didn't travel for work, I don't know how you and, and he would get along. I think because you travel for work and have breaks during the week, your relationship is better. And that should have been a call out to me. I didn't want my kids to have the experiences that I was. And so I was trying so hard to make sure that on the outside, when they were around, because at this point now they're in college or they're in, they're in high school and college, they're they're not around all the time. They're living their, you know, their their lives. And so if I could just keep the peace when they were around, not only would I convince myself that this would get back to normal, but I would present to them in a normal relationship. And that kind of work was exhausting, exhausting all the time.
1: So eventually everything comes to Ahead, so take us through the beginning of when this starts, or or when you notice this, and um, to you know what you eventually had to deal with in in the aftermath of this situation.
0: So, about four weeks before our wedding, we had paid for everything. We were going to elope to New York, and. We had reserved the upper terrace at Grand Central Station and we were going to get married in Grand Central Station. We had the hotels booked. We had the flowers. We had the minister. We had the photographer. We had two friends that were going to go and be our witnesses. And four weeks out, we go to a wine tasting with friends and we get home and I'm climbing into bed and he says to me, sweet PD, sweet Pea, I think I've done something that's going to make you really mad. And I said, well, what have you done? And he pulled out his computer and he showed me an exchange that he was having with a couple on Craigslist, people he met through the casual encounters section. And in the exchange, he had given them my pictures. He had given them my name, what I did for a living, where we lived, where my kids went to college, where his kids went to college. And he had offered me up without my knowledge and without my consent. To have sex with these people. And so I said, Oh no, no, I'm I'm not, I'm not that. I am livid. Get out of my house. How dare you? And I go into this tirade of how dangerous it is, of how ridiculous that is, that he doesn't even know these people. He doesn't even know if it's truly a man and wife or it's two men or it's two women. He doesn't know because they had sent him their pictures. You don't know that this is true. Get out of my house. And what did he do? I knew it. I knew it, Carolyn. I knew you were going to be mad about this. And now I guess we're going to have to stay up all night talking about how your feelings are hurt, how you're so mad I did this. And this is just going to be it. We're going to have to talk all night again about Carolyn's feelings. And I said, No, no, we don't because you're leaving. And he got up and he closed our bedroom door and he locked it and he said, I will never leave this house. And I'm raging and I don't know. I think about this a lot and I offer gratitude for it. I don't know if it was my dog in heaven, Casper. I don't know if it was the good little big Jesus himself. I don't know who it was, but someone whispered in my right ear. You just need to be quiet right now. Just just be quiet. And I got into bed. And I waited for him to fall asleep. And the last thing he said was, "I'm leaving my computer out. Go through it if you want. Tomorrow, I'll t- I'll call them. I'll tell them it's off that you're not interested." Um, just like I knew you would. Knew you, you you wouldn't want to do this. I'm gonna leave my computer broken. And it's important to note that he did that often. If I questioned something, and I never questioned anything about this. If I questioned, like, well, okay, why? Were you supposed to be in San Francisco where I sent you a note and a bottle of wine, but you were really in Atlanta? He'd say, well, here, go through my travel schedule. I never did it because of course that would have made me look crazy. And I would have caught all 10 times of hell for going through his computer. But over time he realized I wasn't, he could make that as an offer, give a false promise or a false, Hey, here it is as an offer. And that may be underscores that you're not lying. And the reality is you are lying. You just know the person's not going to check your story. I waited for him to fall asleep and I grabbed his computer to check the story. And what I found on his computer was so horrific that I immediately shut his computer and started to go back to bed. Again, it goes back to surely what I just heard, what I just saw, what I just experienced with another person can't possibly be real. So I must've looked at it or seen it the wrong way. I'm going back to bed. And then again, that voice was, no, take a look.
1: So everyone, this is where I'm going to be putting in a trigger warning. We're going to be discussing uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault. This is not easy to hear. Um, It's something that you've never heard on uh, the show before, and it is uh, scary. So a big trigger warning. If anyone needs to turn off uh, the show right now, this is the time to do it.
0: And so I popped open his computer. And the initial thing I found that was so egregious is that he belonged to a group in Kansas City on Craigslist that taught men how to drug and incapacitate their wife or girlfriend and then watch while she was raped videotape and watch while she was raped. And then I discovered that for the entirety of our relationship, from about six to eight weeks into our relationship, Until the present day, he had been putting me out on Craigslist and offering me up to have sex with other people. If he had asked me to get dressed up and go out to dinner, and he'd say things like, "Oh, sweetie, you've worked so hard. You've worked so hard this week. Get dressed up. I am taking you out. We're going to have the best meal. You deserve it. Look as fabulous as you your fabulous self can be." he would have stationed four to five men around that restaurant to check me out. Every email that he wrote started off with, my girlfriend has no idea I'm doing this, and ended with, I will facilitate what can be done to her. I discovered on his computer that there were nights and events that I was a participant in that I had no memory of, and significant events. Things that you would remember, and I had no memory of. Now, our back, our bedroom, opened up to the backyard and its own private entrance, and a back patio with its own private entrance. Our ritual, if if I was home, was for him to bring me a glass of wine every night in bed. I now know, do not know what was in that glass of wine. I don't know how many nights where I was involved with something. I know, I know some, but I'm sure I don't know all. During that time, one of the questions I get often, well, didn't your body feel different or weird at times? And the answer is yes. I'll offer a trigger warning or a little breathing pattern here. Everybody needs to take a great big inhale and exhale. Now would be the time to do it. There were times when my female anatomy was in pain or felt bruised and raw. And I would think, well, maybe I worked out hard and, and maybe I forgot to change my, my gym clothes because again, I wasn't working out often. So when I did, I thought, oh, well maybe, you know, I did too much. I'm not used to that. I would go to the doctor because I had constant yeast infections. So there were things that I never would have in a million years thought, I think he's drugging me and allowing me to be raped. Not once would I have thought it, There's a great webinar that was done by domesticshelters.org back in 11, 11, 2021 that deals exactly with this kind of abuse. It is a normal thing that happens, abnormal thing that happens regularly, I should say, as a form of abuse. It's often the one that's not talked about because people can't can't name it. People couldn't have ever raised their hand. I, I was just in a meeting with a psychiatrist and she said, actually, Carolyn, if you had come to us with even the inkling that that's what you thought it was, you probably would have been labeled delusional, had a diagnosis that put you in a three-day hole because that's crazy. Also, what I found on his computer is that while he professed to be, to me, a monogamous heterosexual, he was actually having sex with both men and women all the time for the entire eight years of our relationship. And he had actually done this in previous relationships before me. What I did at that moment, there are so many brilliant parts of my mind that worked and functioned that I can't explain. And so many parts that did not at that, that time. I started taking pictures. Um, I, I, he uses a Mac. I, did, I don't know how to use the Mac. I don't have a Mac, never have. So I started taking pictures because I was very afraid if I read an email that if I didn't remember to go back and mark it as unread, that he might know which emails he had read and not unread. So I was smart enough to to go back and hit unread or unread on his email, but not smart enough to have just hit print and let it print off in the printer right right downstairs for me. I just collected it all. I was very afraid he was going to find me. And in between me taking pictures, I'm running to the bathroom to vomit. I'm trying to keep quiet and vomiting. And I I took as much as I felt comfortable and I was so afraid he was going to wake up that I snuck back the computer in his, um, on his dresser in our bedroom. I climbed back in bed and he turned over in bed and wrapped himself around me and I saw my skin was on fire. And the next day I called him sick and I spent the day throwing up and then that night I decided I'm going to have to craft an escape plan and I'm going to have to pull my act together until I craft that escape plan and most importantly I'm not going to be able to eat or drink anything in this house and how am I going to say no to sex? And how am I going to not eat or drink anything in my house? And how am I going to make this all happen? Because no one connects the dots of affairs like that. He was having people in our home when I traveled. So complete strangers have seen our family pictures on the wall. Complete strangers know where we live. And so I started to craft an escape plan. And I remember one day he had gone off to work and I had a gal come over to give me an estimate because my plan was to move everything out of the house when he was at work one day. And she said, so you're going to leave this house. And I said, yeah. And she knew not this whole story of what I said, but she knew a good chunk of why I was leaving the biggest, ugliest parts of why I was crafting this escape plan. And she said, most women want it. I said, what do you mean? She said, you live in an incredible neighborhood. This is a 4,500 square foot house, tricked out with every bell and whistle. You're going to leave here? Most women wouldn't. And I said, Did, do you remember what I told you? Why I need this estimate? And she said, yeah. You don't think you can find a way to live with it? Oh, my God. That's a lesson that if when someone tells you your story and they don't believe you or they negate it, they are not the person you keep telling your story to somebody else. I asked her to leave. But I did spend about two hours that day pretending I could live with this. What would my life be like if I lived with this and didn't didn't move, just figured out a way never to have sex again, never to have, eat or drink in my house again. What could I do? And those two hours, damn, you destroyed me. The thought that I could actually put myself in that place And tolerate that form of a life. Set me back a lot. But I I kept going. I kept crafting the escape plan. And I kept everything hidden from him. I divulged to my family what was happening. I told them about how sad I had been for so long. I started speaking the truth of what I had been feeling for eight years. And there were people that I did that with that blamed me and said, oh my God, you could have said something. And there were people that said, I'm so sorry, I believe you. And people began to rally around me. My girlfriends all across the country from high school paid for a moving van so that I wouldn't have to risk spending any of the money that he would find out about. Friends waited in the cul-de-sac around the corner to move things out when he went to work one day. People in his office were keeping track of him because they were my friends, too, to make sure that he didn't leave at any point on the day that I was getting ready to leave. People rallied around me when I started telling my story, because turns out people start to know a narcissist before the person living with them ever does. They might not be able to label it that, but all of them could say there was something about him we didn't like. And so they rose to the occasion to help me craft that escape plan. So when I escaped, it took me about 10 days to craft it, and it took me about seven months to implement it. I had visits to the police to tell them what I was doing. I began contacting the FBI to see if there was any way to file charges based on the evidence that I found. Doctor visits, because, of course, when I have unknowingly been exposed to dangerous people, then you could potentially unknowingly be exposed to sexually transmitted diseases, lawyers, rounds of trips. And things were so desperate in that time because I am still living with them. I had to write my name down on Post-it notes because I couldn't remember my name. I remember standing in front of a receptionist for a doctor's appointment and she said, what's your name? And I didn't know what to write. I took out my wallet and I handed her my license and I said, here I am. Because I couldn't remember. And so I was functioning at high levels and making notes and being secretive. At the same time, I was losing my mind and couldn't remember large things about myself, like my name. The execution of the of the escape plan took so long because I wanted to make sure that I was ty- I was finding so much out about him. I was, at, that point, I about, out about at that point, I found out about the secret accounts. At that point, I found out about the um, bankruptcy he had declared prior to meeting me. But because we were on the house together and because we had some joint accounts together, I needed to make sure that all of that was buttoned down so that my kids weren't compromised more. I was compromised financially.
1: So eventually you get into the implementation of your plan and you move out and that's when he tries to get you back. So walk us through that.
0: He was sending me texts of, okay, I realize I have a problem because I didn't tell him what all I found. I never told him what all I found. I said that somebody had sent me pictures and left them on our door stoop of a woman he was having an affair with and that that was the reason I was leaving. I didn't tell him any of this during my escape plan. So it, it began with, um, you know, what you can call the psychiatrist I'm seeing. I've, I've signed all the paperwork that says you are to know everything about me. So you can call. And I'm seeing him regularly. And I am going there every week, Carolyn. And I am investing in myself because I'm going to get you back. This is just a glitch in our relationship. And it's a big misunderstanding and it's a big mistake. And I'm going to get you back. And so, not because I know who he is and actually doing the thing, I'm actually calling the psychiatrist because why would I doubt him? Why would I doubt that he had given the, the information or was even going? They didn't know who was he had never made an appointment and he surely because of that there was no record of me giving information on a man who wasn't their patient and so anytime he said carolyn are you doing this to get back and to be a better person a man i followed up and he wasn't doing any of it but he was having people still to our house when i was gone because when i tried to keep the house that didn't that didn't work so i ended up you know, in the, in the escape plan had to pivot and I ended up at that point living in my car. So at this point, I am not yet 50. I have a six figure job. I have two master's degrees and I'm living in my car because while I did stay with my kids, they had moved and we pretty much figured he didn't know where they lived. I did stay with them, but not often because it turned from, I'm going to get you back to, don't worry, I'll find you and we'll die together. And I was very fearful that if he found me, he would kill whoever I was with. I have amazing friends who would have housed me the entire time. And I was afraid to stay at their places. I did have the luxury of traveling a bit for work. Um, and so I was at some point able to have hotels that I could stay in. I remember going on a work trip and I wasn't had to do a training session for two weeks. And I was just happy that for two solid weeks, I wouldn't have to move and live out of my car. My car was packed from one end to the other with plastic bins where I kept food and my clothes, pillows and blankets. I slept in the parking lots of emergency rooms because I thought if he finds me and he kills me, at least maybe I'll be found quicker. Or if I die, because I often thought I was going to die, at least I'll be found quicker. And so for me, the shame that was so infused in what I had allowed myself to become and what I had allowed myself to live with and what was done to me, that the overarching want To be safe, push that shame to the side, and I'd have to deal with it later, but for those times, push that shame to the side in order to protect me, myself, my kids, our pets. And that final cutoff of of, um, no contact was in July of 2016. And I just sent a text that said, there's never going to be a time that I ever want to hear from you again. So don't ever contact me again. And he would try. He did. He would try. I backtracked once and then I met him at a public restaurant. I got there early. And I said to the the wait staff who I knew, and I said, look, he's going to be coming in. He's very dangerous. I've actually left him. He's brought me here under the guise of he's got paperwork for me to sign. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do need the paperwork. If he makes a move on me or if you see me leave with him, you need to know that that is not my choice and call the cop, cops immediately. Here's his car number. Here's his license plate number. Here's his cell phone number. Here's mine. Here's my emergency contact. I need you to be my backup here. Can you do that? And they were like, yes, we can. And he still would text me constantly and I would ignore it. And then he finally
1: stopped texting me. With what you had to deal with, it's not easy wading through everything because there is so many layers. Where do you find um, you being in a trauma still? Uh, What brings you there? Obviously, talking about this isn't easy. And I guess, what would you say to other people? Moving forward, um, about I guess what helped you, and also tell us about the organization that you began.
0: Sure. At some place along the way, and I wish I could have time stamped it, I started to decide, and I, I guess I should ask, it, I, I can tell you exactly the words, but I don't know if you're going to have to bleep me out. Do you mind bleeping me out? Or can't you
1: do me? whatever, do your worst.
0: Okay. I was like, that motherfucker doesn't get to. He is not taking away any part of my doctor. He can fuck off and I will heal myself and I will heal with my children. And I doubled down on everything. I went to therapy twice a week. I went to, one of the beautiful things that people need to understand is that if you're navigating domestic violence, In any form, it doesn't have to be physical, sexual, it has to be any form. You can use the services of a domestic violence shelter and go to their free therapy. I went to free therapy at domestic violence shelters and I went to another therapist. I told my work what was happening. My work helped me stay safe. They helped when I finally found a place to live. They sent me a list of things compiled from their corporate security of how to check my car and how to check my home to make sure things hadn't been tampered with. In the midst of that healing and the therapy and the talking about it, I decided that I was going to directly address my sexual health. It's something I love about myself and I refuse to allow him to take that away from me. And that meant extra therapy. There are specialized organizations across the country that deal directly with sexual abuse. So I did that hard work and faced it because I decided that my body needed to know what was happening so that I could start to recognize what felt good in my body because I had ignored it for so long and just lived with what felt bad that I didn't even know how to deal with what felt good. During that, I have to admit, I was still drinking heavily, I was still not eating right, and I was not exercising. So as much good therapy as I was doing, I wasn't completing the whole picture. I gave myself grace for that. Because leaning Healing is not linear and I and so many people I think feel as if they're doing it wrong. When you have like 30 good days in a row and you have four days that are crappy in bed, people think I'm failing in the healing. They are not. That's your body getting rest. That that conference I told you about, that webinar from domestic shelters.org that was in November of twenty twenty one. I thought I got this down, I can handle it. I got it. That webinar sent me in bed for three days. And that was just a year ago. I have to really be in touch with my body and what feels good. And the more I allowed people and experience that feel good in my body, the more I could easily recognize when people didn't make me feel good or experiences didn't make me feel good. And what I learned and the most beautiful thing of starting to break that generational trauma is that I do not double down on the people who don't make me feel good. Those are people that I walk away from. You don't have to double down. Somebody who doesn't make you feel good in order to prove your own worth to them, you stick with the people that make your body feel good and your brain feel good, and the experiences which do that as well. And then the more you do that, the more your body instantly recognizes good versus bad. And I realize in there for trauma survivors, there's this element of, well, wait, am I tricking myself into feeling overly, overly? concerned about people that I'm going to brush off really good people because they've triggered something in me. And I decided I didn't care. I decided if somebody triggers something in me, I'm not going to go near them because until my body differentiates good and bad, I want to walk away from people, even people maybe I shouldn't have until I learn that lesson. Because I'm also a believer that if people are supposed to be in their life, your life, they come back around. And when you start putting boundaries in place, well, that leads to decisions not to talk to your mother anymore. If you realize that's where that problem comes from, or your brother, it's not only affects the loves of your life, it affects your family, it affects your friends. I've walked away from long friendships because I've realized, how you really, really are not a good person to hang out with. And that healing, every part of that healing and the journey, I started to document. And I took those moments of mine. And I created an organization called safeandharmsway.org. We're an online community because every every week, 10,000 people who need help and assistance with toxicity and abuse don't get the help they need. Every month, there are 10 million searches in the U.S. and Canada for solutions and resources related to domestic violence. So. Everything on my healing that I went through is created in an avenue for healing at Safe and Harm's Way. And what we just did is we just, this, this month and last month, we launched a major campaign that uh, premiered in Times Square and rolled across the country with issues related to isolation as a form of abuse and those feelings, because I never would have identified as being abused the emotional of it, and the physical of it, and the, and the verbal, financial, financial I didn't know about, but certainly emotional, narcissistic, and verbal. Those I wouldn't have identified as being abused, but I could have told you how sad I was. I could have told you how much fear I lived in. I could have told you that I worried a lot. I could have told you that I kind of wonder if he's lying to me. And when it got worse, I sure could have told you what it felt, how it hurt, the pain of being thrown up against a wall, the fear that I have to run and lock myself in a bedroom or a bathroom. If you have those feelings, you can identify with that. That's abuse. So we talk about feelings, how people make you feel small. And that is a first and only website, feeling-small.com. And you go through a test, not a test, but you identify in certain ways of how you're feeling in a relationship. And then at the end, you get one or two actionable steps that you can do immediately. It's a safe browser. It looks benign click on the browser, it shuts it down for 72 hours. So if somebody, you go to bed and somebody wants to pop up and see what you were looking at. So I get to bring those solutions to the world. Again, as a a component of my healing, the people in my world who helped me far and wide and still do, I want to bring that to other people. And that's where it's, that's where it's ended. Or that's where it's evolved currently.
1: And if you have any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would it be?
0: The most beautiful thing you can do. Because to the person, every person I work with across this world who has experienced narcissistic abuse or domestic violence. They are empathetic, fiercely intelligent. They never quit. And they always win. What makes them double down on staying with someone to prove their worth? If you take those very same skills and invest them in yourself, you start your healing process. And if you do that coupled with boundaries of allowing your body to know what feels good and what doesn't, but most importantly, acting on the people, the experiences, the food, the fun, the travel that make you feel good and not saying, well, this makes me feel bad, but I think I can fix it. You put that boundary in and think of through a window and very far away as a nice way to love some people. Then you start to choose what feels good and what is healthy versus living with the constant state of anxiety on what a person or experience is bringing to your world. So boundaries and taking those same skills that you have authentically within yourself and investing them back into yourself. The two biggest takeaways, and, and I'll say over it all, is the realization that healing takes a while and you're not doing it wrong if you have a bad day or a bad week. But reaching out to people is the way that speeds up that ability to stand back in the light.
1: Well, Caroline, I want to thank you for being here with me today.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Brandon. I sure do appreciate it.
1: What you did today is not an easy thing to do. I've said it many times. uh, Your story is a difficult one to tell the depths of it the the trauma and how deep it can go it's um, a dangerous thing to do for a lot of people who haven't gone through a lot of the therapy it's still a, a you know retraumatizing thing to do you know coming on the show and doing that and sharing with anyone with everyone uh, not easy thing to do at, at all and you did a wonderful job today translating. Your story, your experience, and your feelings, all of those things are going to validate uh, everyone out there. And I cannot thank you enough for, for being here with us today and, and sharing your story.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And, and it, with your blessing or permission, I will take all the resources I use and create a PDF that, you're, that any listener can download. Okay. And, and then have that tool of resources Um, to easily pull from for their own immediate and actionable plans they have at those moments when they're most, most in pain. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: So everything that was just mentioned will be in our show notes if you want to contact Caroline and get all of these resources. And if you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. Click on that button and it takes you to our guest form page. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. Also at our website, we have our very own support group. It's a safe social network. If you click on the support group button at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, inside our support group, we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, every Thursday afternoon, and every Saturday night. We have forum boards for you to post on and for people to validate your experience, give you support, give you some advice if it's asked for. And we also have ad-free episodes on there and episodes that never made it to air so if you want to join our support group it helps us out a lot when you join a support group and you can help out other people too even if you need support you're also giving support to others it's a great 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 group of people that are there so please do join our support group today and if you need even more support please do visit our friends at domestic shelters.org and caroline mentioned them today And DomesticShelters.org is a place where you can find articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, every email address, every website address of every shelter and domestic violence agency. No matter how big your town is, how small your town is, you can find everything at DomesticShelters.org. It is a wonderful organization. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Caroline, we hope you have... A good night.